So a couple years ago, my teenage daughter and I walked into Target when suddenly a woman runs up to us and she says, it's you, it's you. And she was jumping up and down and hyperventilating. I said, yeah, it's me, it's me. She goes, no, it's you, it's really you. I can't believe it's you. And I go, yeah, it's me. And, and she goes, no, 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 don't go anywhere. I'm going to get a pen. I'm going to get your autograph. I can't believe it's you. Just tell me it's you. Admit that it's you. I go, no, 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 it's me. But who do you think I am? And she goes, you're Moby. You're that famous singer, songwriter. I can't believe I ran into you in Target. No one's going to believe this. And I was feeling super creepy. I was like, what? And, but, and, but the parent inside of me in the back of my mind was like, this is really convenient, you know, to have somebody run up to me in the middle of Target and think that I'm famous in front of my teenage daughter. I'm like, that's okay. But I still felt a little creepy. And we got in the car and we drove home uh, that day. And I, I'm like, I got to figure out who's this Moby guy. Like, I got to know who he is. And so I, I, I looked him up on the internet and sure enough, he looks like me. I mean, he really does. And a guy with that good looking of a head and a face, man, he's got to be careful. That can be dangerous for people like me. Sometimes seeing what looks like yourself in a different light can be creepy. And that's what I love about the Bible. We look into it and almost every time we see ourselves, it's strange, but in a good way. The reflection shining back shows us who we really are, not the lies that we tell ourselves. One day I opened up the book of Psalms uh, to 73, and, and that's when it happened. As I began to read, I had a Moby experience. I heard, or should I say, I saw the story of my life unfold before my eyes on the pages of this supernatural book. I almost dropped my Bible. It was definitely a description of my life. As I read, its words and narrative illustrated my most inner feelings and failings. So what does it say in Psalms 73? Well, let me just be clear. This chapter isn't just another message that is part of our Summer Selah series. And it is, of course. But it's even more than that. It's the narrative of a man's life. A man who bears his soul in honesty. A man who loses his mind and then regains it. And a man who ultimately finds security in God himself. So what does it say? Here's what I saw as I began to read in Psalm 73. He writes, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God he writes, is good. And that's great theology, isn't it? And it's simple, or so you would think. But remember, the nation of Israel struggled with that when they were in the wilderness wandering. And there are some of you here today, your life feels like a wilderness right now, and you're struggling. And it's good to be reminded of the truth from Asaph, who writes, God is good. And as I began to read, I was all excited because I, I thought to myself, this chapter is going to be amazing. I mean, after all, he's talking about me. God is good to me, and I have everything I could want, and I'm pure in heart. Isn't it interesting, though, how we so often paint ourselves in a much better light than we really are? He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then he continues and he says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. 
immediately I thought to myself, wait a second, time out. I don't get this. How could you have almost slipped? I mean, you're a spiritual giant. After all, you're the guy who wrote Psalm 73, and it's in the Bible. I mean, how could this happen? How is this possible? You are pure, and that's what a picture flashed across the theater of my mind. You see, when I was younger, my dad and my family, we would go hiking in the mountains of Arizona. And most often our hiking was this kind of hiking. But every now and then our hiking was like this. And I remember a couple of times as a young man, we were climbing down what felt like a cliff. And I'm going down and my dad was always ahead of me, below me. And there were several times my dad reached out and he would guide my foot as I, as I listened to his voice. And I, and I watched, he would guide my foot to the next crack and I could put a foothold in there and lower the other part of my body down. And I think what the psalmist is writing is he's saying, I almost stopped letting God guide me. I almost stopped listening to his voice. Uh, the man that is writing this psalm, his name is, let me introduce you to him, Asaph. Asaph wasn't just anybody. He was a musician, a worship leader in the royal court of King David in the tabernacle. He literally would lead worship in the tabernacle. He was kind of like the modern day 2016 equivalent to Pastor Steve Olson, our worship pastor here. But he, uh, many people though naturally think that David wrote the entire book of Psalms, but he didn't. King David only wrote about 73 of the Psalms, and Asaph, this worship leader, this uh, guy who would lead worship in the tabernacle, wrote about 12 of them. Now, something else occurred to me as well. Asaph is clearly illustrating that those who are truly pure in heart have to be honest and transparent, that those who are pure in heart have to claim their own faults. They aren't fault finders or finger pointers. No, they are soul searchers like miners. They dig down those who are pure, dig into the depths of their own depravity. And in the process, they allow the treasure of God's goodness to fill them. Again, as I read Psalm 73 that day, this story seems strangely familiar to me. Why? Because it's the story of my life. It's the story of your life. In fact, this could be a chapter out of any one of our lives. Asaph, as he writes, he then moves to full disclosure. He says, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my fo foothold. And then he tells us why. He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When I read that, I'm like, oh, I got to know what's going on. I mean, this is a guy who's in the royal court of King David, a guy who contributed 12 chapters in the Bible. And, and now he's saying, look, he's burying his soul to you and to me. He's just being honest. He's like, man, I almost lost it one day with God. And he bears his soul. And, and as we read this, I'm like, I, I want to understand this better. And, and many of you know that the Old Testament has been written in the, in the original language was Hebrew. And I, so I looked up the word wicked in the Hebrew, and it's the word rasha, which means evil and guilty. In case you're wondering, these people didn't have a very good resume. They were evil and guilty. They didn't need a judge or a jury because they didn't hide their vile lifestyle. They lived it openly in front of any, everyone. But it was especially jarring to Asaph because they had the easiest life out of anyone he knew. I wanted to understand his thoughts better. So then I looked up the word 
prosperity in the Hebrew, and it comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. The wicked and evil had peace. Their lives were tranquil and peaceful. So here's a good question, and I assume it would be one that Asaph probably asked often. Why would those who are evil and guilty find peace and prosperity? And that's when the Bible got very personal for me on that day. You see, I have been there not once, but many times my foot has almost slipped. I have nearly lost my foothold. Why? Because I've said to God the same thing. God, why are you allowing these evil and guilty people to find prosperity and peace? What are you thinking, God? Isn't that terrible that I would say that to God? but it's the truth. You see, instead of wanting everyone to prosper and find peace, human nature so often leads us towards desires of wanting some people to find trouble and despair. This is all of us, isn't it? If we're really honest, isn't this the truth? And I think Asaph has just cleared the way for us to be honest. You see, we've fallen into the trap before, each one of us of looking into the seeming tranquility and prosperity of someone else's life and asking the question, why? Why? But it doesn't stop there. We quickly uh, compare their reckless living with the picture that we have of our own perfection. We ask, why do they get to have it so easy? And I've got to have it so hard. I mean, I'm kind and loving. I'm a child of God, but my life is difficult. These people are mean. They're awful. And they get it easy. Have you ever been there before? Does that sound familiar? Maybe you stepped out of the car and you went into work like you do every single day of the place that you're employed, and you go in there, and there's that one employee that lies. They cut corners. They steal from the company, but for some reason, they keep getting promoted. Maybe you go to family gatherings, and there's that one relative that everybody heaps praise on constantly, but they're so difficult to be around. They're full of themselves and they're not very nice. Or maybe you're a student and you've been in a classroom with a professor or a teacher and, and that teacher, they heap uh, recognition upon a student who's pretty much a bully and you know that favoritism is in full force. Well, Asaph, the writer of the psalm that we're reading together today, as he bears his soul, he goes on to reference the arrogance of the wicked, not one more time, not two more times, but seven more times for a total of eight pointed indictments before the end of this chapter. Now, apparently, in his humanity, he struggled quite a bit with the peaceful success of these evil people. So how did it happen? How did he slip Asaph shared the error of his ways. Did you catch it? He said, I envied. And according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the word envy means to feel a desire to have what someone else has. To feel a desire to have what someone else has. <laughs> you were there. We were all there. It, it was a while ago. It was when it first began. Remember? We were there together. We were in the sandbox. We were probably two and a half, three years old, and there were other kids, and we were playing when suddenly a shiny little toy caught our attention out of the corner of our eye, and there was a little kid playing with it, and we got up, we walked over, we pushed him aside, and we grabbed that toy, and we said, give me, it's mine. Envy has been in our hearts for a very, very long time. But what is envy really? 
Envy is a competition between you and someone else. It's a comparison where you will lose every single time. Why? Whatever you desire in their life is unlikely unavailable in your own. There is an, a clear path for you to attain what they have. And it gets even worse. You see, it will drive a wedge between you and the person you envy, cutting you off from a potentially rich and beneficial relationship. So what is it? What is it that we look at other people's lives and we take a picture and we're like, ah, oh, I want that in my own. What is it? Well, we know that we want their rock hard bodies, their successful careers, their intelligence, their financial security, their wealth, their social status, their charismatic personality, their beauty, their athletic ability, their musical talent, Steve Olson, their toys and houses, their relationships and physical health. There are things in their lives that we want. Why is it so often that everybody else's lives look so much better than our own, and especially on Facebook? problem with envy. We've all done it, of course, but, but the problem with envy is we don't know the truth about their struggles, about their weaknesses. Whether we peer at others with our face pressed against the social electronic window or across the sea of cubicles, what we see isn't often even close to an accurate picture of re reality. And that is the problem. Listen again to Asaph as he bears his soul, this worship leader for King David in the house of God. He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When I saw 
He became the judge. He took God's place. He relied on his own limited perception and knowledge. And that can be our problem as well. Humans are terrible judges and our vision is nearsighted at best. Why do we have such poor vision? Why is our judgment so paired? Well, it might be because we really can't tell how someone's doing based on what we see. But God can. God can. God knows if behind that tan and sports car that there's a man who is hurting and racked with insecurity. God knows if behind her extreme beauty is a woman who struggles with depression, fear, and loneliness. Their marriage could be falling apart, and we wouldn't be able to tell, but God can. Asaph was jarred. He was frustrated by what he saw. But what exactly did Asaph see? What caused him to almost derail his faith in God? Well, let's let him explain it to us. He goes on and he says, as he bears his soul, they seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats, they have everything they could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they strut and they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What is they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people, enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Lies. Lies. Almost all of what we just read are lies. Some of you are thinking, how's that possible? I mean, the Bible doesn't have lies in it. Well, we need to remember the context of this chapter. Asaph is writing about what he saw. And how many of you know what we see isn't always the truth? You see, envy is constantly whispering lies to us. Now, I'm not saying wicked people aren't successful, healthy, and live easy lives. They do. But envy comes to us, and it whispers lie after lie. But there are two really big lies that envy whispers to us. And so often, we accept them, and we start to believe them. One of the, the big lies that envy whispers is a perfect life exists and it's not yours. Perfect life exists, and it's not yours. Look at them. Oh, they're amazing. Look at their life, and <laughs> look at you. You're pathetic. Oh, my gosh. You should get some other life. Look at, look at these guys, and I, are you kidding me? You're really going to live that way? It says things like, look at his wife. She's so perfect. Have you noticed her figure? I can't believe his wife works three jobs, volunteers 30 hours a week at the local nursing home, manages their household finances, takes care of all eight of their children, and gives him a back rub every single night before he goes to bed. That's just not fair. Why can't I have a wife like that? How many of you ladies know that perception isn't always reality? Look at this family behind us. So often, it's a lie. We all know that, look at her. She, his wife probably nags her sometimes. Her husband chose too high of a, a risk portfolio, and their 401k plunged along with many others. Their dog gets diarrhea, and their kids have meltdowns in Target. Right? You see, there are no perfect people, and there are no perfect lives. There are no perfect people. 
and there are no perfect lives. I was talking to a guy that works actually right here at Maple Grove E-Free. He's the business manager on staff at our church. His name is Alan Peterson. We were talking about envy this last week. And he said, Travis, here's a, 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 what happened to me one day. He said, envy just began to spring up inside of me. It happened when I pulled into a parking lot and I saw a blue Mercedes. And he said, immediately I thought to myself, I should be driving that. That's a beautiful car. Why can't I drive that car? And he's like, it just kept welling up inside of me. He said, as I continued to proceed further, it kept growing. And then I saw the sign posted in front of it. It read, for chemotherapy patients only. And he said, in that moment, Travis, envy left. And then he went on to make this incredible statement. I wrote it down. I want to share it with you. He said, envy always divorces us from context. And it's true, isn't it? Envy takes a quick picture, and we look at it, we think, oh, their lives are so much better than ours. But what we don't see is what hap is happening behind the picture. Envy has an even deeper root, and it's this. It's really about identity. We feel insecure about ourselves, so we take that resentment and that anger out on those around us who seem to have it all together. Well, I want to remind you this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to accept God's identity for you. God loves you, and he accepts you. You can't work harder to gain God's love. It's already there. You can't outsin God's love and grace. He loves you the way you are. And you know what I, I think is amazing about God? He doesn't compare you, dads, to other men. Gentlemen, he doesn't compare you to ladies. He doesn't compare you to another woman. You know, when God looks at you, fathers, you dads, he's like, that's my son. That's my son. Look at him. He woke up early to go to work today to provide for his kids. But he doesn't just do that, didn't just do that today. He said every single day, he works hard. That's my, that's my son. And he's a great dad because he, he doesn't just work for his kids and his wife to provide for them. He would die for them proud of you, son. You know what, ladies? God looks at you. He doesn't compare you. He goes, oh, sleeping beauty. She just woke up. She's doing her hair. She's getting her clothes on. She is gorgeous, beautiful from the inside out, exactly the way that I made her. I'm so proud. She is my God loves each and every one of you. As you follow Jesus, be secure in the fact that you are a child of God. That is your identity. Thousands of years ago, we were given a huge piece of wisdom. And it's a proverb. And it says this. It says, a heart at peace gives life to the body. But envy rots the bones. Do you know what a heart at peace is? It's somebody who knows that their identity is a child of God. They know that they're loved by God. Envy whispers its lies, many of them, into your ears. But it whispers a really big lie, and that is there is a perfect life, but it's not yours. And then it goes on to whisper another lie. Pursuing God is a waste of time. Pursuing God is a waste of time. Envy wants you to pursue everything but God. Oh, you... You have more time in your, your schedule, your calendar? Oh, let me fill that with more events that you can take your kids to. Oh, 
you, you, you like that shiny thing over there? Let me give you some, some more money so you can get some more hobbies so you can do everything but be spiritual. Oh, you just focus on what you want to focus on. Don't worry about God. And how many of you know that not only is that not true, it's completely the opposite. We know this because Jesus one day looked at the people with him and he said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but he loses his soul? What good is it if somebody gets everything they could ever want but they miss out on a relationship with their heavenly father? Keeping yourself pure by making the, uh, uh, the focus of your life, serving others and pursuing God is always worth it. Now, remember when I talked earlier about how his foot, Asa's foot had almost slipped, about how he had almost lost his foothold? Now he goes on and he tells us exactly what would have happened and what it would have looked like had he completely fallen off the ledge, his place with God. He says, if I had spoken, really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. In other words, if I had allowed other people to hear my darkest negative thoughts that were conceived in the womb of envy, it would have weakened their faith and led them down the same slippery slope of doubt. In other words, he's saying what comes out of our mouths is powerful. But he quickly finds his way back to the truth and to right thinking. That's what I love about, uh, about Asaph. He's just a regular guy. He's like, oh, I struggled. Let me tell you how I've struggled. And I can relate. It's a Moby experience for me. It makes sense to me because I've been there. And, and, and so he's, he's struggling and he finds his way finally back to right thinking when he says, so I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. You know what he was getting at? I worked hard to figure out why do these mean people keep getting a better life? It doesn't make sense. He's like, I tried really hard and I couldn't figure it out. I think he's waving his white flag. But then ultimately I think he says, you know what? I'm not God. It's not up to me. And I think God led some of you into this room today so that you could hear his transparent thoughts and heart. Because I think some of you need to let go, like Asaph did. There are those of you in this room, you have a God complex by trying to resolve in your mind why the wicked prosper. Bad people prosper. It doesn't make sense. It never will. But what does make sense is that you will never be able to move forward until you let go of the stronghold of envy in your mind. In other words, I tried to figure it all out, but I couldn't. Now we're at the best part. I mean, now his soul is laid bare before all of us. And, and, and we're coming along to really the point where everything starts to turn, where he really starts to get things figured out when he says, then I went into your sanctuary, O God. And I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. The more he thought about God, and their eternal destiny, the destiny of the wicked, not their temporary prosperity on this earth, the more everything came into focus for Asaph. And that was huge because what did he do? He, he traded uh, the temporary for the eternal. He traded materialism for God, the living God in heaven. See, it wasn't until he took his eyes off of uh, himself and he put them back on God, took them off of what he was envying in other people's lives, and that's when he began to find the answer to the source of his problem. His problem wasn't that the wicked prosper. 
they always will. His problem wasn't that he was wasting his time trying to keep his heart pure. That is always the right way to live. His problem was that he had taken his eyes off of God and stopped trusting what God was telling him. He was having a crisis of his faith. Remember? I was on the side of the mountain. I'm hanging there. This is a true story. My dad's right there. And, and I'm trembling. And, I, and I'm sitting there. And my dad's below me and ahead of me. And I got to be honest with you. I wouldn't have made it down if I hadn't kept close to my dad and trusted what his voice was telling me. It was my dad who helped me. You know, there are some of us in this room. We need our dads to help us. Our dads are priceless. Our fathers are amazing. But there are those of us in this room who need the help of our heavenly father. And suddenly, Asaph, the writer of Psalms, he gets it right. He puts God back as the foothold, the foundation of his life. When he writes these incredible words, who am I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. He says, I desire you more than anything on earth. I, Asaph, desire you, O oh God, more than anything on this earth. Can you say that? Can you? Can you say that? Because that was the problem with the rich young ruler. He couldn't sell what he had to follow Jesus. His money, his stuff, his status meant more to him than becoming a follower of Christ. How do we fall into that same trap of thinking by envying and thinking that this world has anything to offer us when it absolutely doesn't. If like me, you see your own reflection in Asaph's story, if you're struggling with envy like I have struggled, you need to know that there is hope. So God has given us this incredibly clear path to follow, to get out of the trap of envy. And why is that important? It's important because some of you will go and you'll be hanging out today with family and envy will come along and kind of tap you on the shoulder and it'll go, oh yeah, you're having a good time, but look at them. Look at them. Oh, you'd be having such a better time if you were over there with them and living that life. And here's the thing. The imperfect life God has given you is perfect. Envy will steal the joy out of your life. It will destroy your contentment and try to convince you that what you have isn't good enough. And so we need to deal with envy. How do we get rid of it? There are really a couple ways. The first is really important. Accept the truth that nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. Everything we can gain in this world will one day fall apart and disappear. And here's what I'm trying to say. Your grip is weakening. We can't take anything that makes us comfortable in this world to the next. It all stays here. Ask the Billionaires Club in the United States of America, and they'll tell you the same thing as they're writing out their wills of how they want their money spent while they're alive on this earth and after they're gone, because they know they can't bring it either. Your grip is weakening. Nothing lasts. Your health is deteriorating. The day you were born, we and I was born, we started an imminent countdown with immortality. In other words, we all die one day. Some people, I've talked to people in this room, and they're like, I, I fear getting older. I fear death. You know what? We need to get over that, don't we? Death is a good thing. 
Did you know that it's a good thing? I've come to be at peace with death. I think all the funerals I have officiated and all the people I've been with when they breathe their last breath and I've contemplated death, I'm excited to die one day. And that might sound morbid to you, but you want to know why? Because when you know that your time and you are acutely aware that your time is running out, you value this moment right here. You see, guys, look around the room. We're never getting this back. This moment right here, as imperfect as it is, is a priceless gift from God. And it's what we have now. It doesn't get any better than this. This is incredible. But death is a great thing, too, because Paul the Apostle wrote, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. You know, what, you know what I think he was thinking? One day I'm going to die. I'm going to open my eyes and Jesus is going to be looking right back at me. And I'm going to see the glory of heaven and all the amazing, pleasurable, joyful things. I'm going to look back down on earth on all the things that distracted me, wasted my time, the little trinkets that shined. And I'm going to think to myself, that was but a second. But I get to be with Jesus forever for all of eternity. For me to live is Christ. But to die is gain. Nothing lasts. Your name will be forgotten. Oh, they might remember you, your kids and your grandkids for, you know, a, a, a little bit. But in a couple of generations, you will be forgotten. They're going to, in a couple generations, they're going to be scratching their head. And they're going to be going, who's that Travis Rosinger guy? Travis Rosinger? Who's it? Wait, is he, was he Moby? Was that Moby? And people won't remember me. And you know what? That's okay. You know what that means? I have a great opportunity to make the name of Jesus famous. The Bible says that there's only one name given under heaven by which men can be saved. And it is the name of Jesus that saves people. Everything is fading. Nothing lasts Envy will be squashed when you accept the truth that nothing lasts. But the next step is the most important, and Asaph himself points it out, and it's this. Spend time in God's presence. Increase your desire for God's presence. What does he say? I desire you more than anything on earth. Why is desire so important? Because desire is the engine of life. What you desire, you will spend your energy on, your time on, your life on. So let me ask you, do you want to be consumed by something that won't last? Or do you want to be consumed by a passionate pursuit of Jesus? I think it's interesting that we opened up Webster's Dictionary and we read the definition. It said to feel a desire. But then what does Asaph ends with? He says, I desire you more than anything on earth. He has replaced the desire of envy with the desire of Jesus. And this is where the psalmist has finally come to the end of himself, the beginning of a real relationship with God. He has finally crossed the line that has etched out the path to true spiritual maturity. He makes his choice. He chooses God. He says, you, God, I desire more than anything on earth. He gets it. And that's when he says possibly some of the most famous words that have ever come out of the Bible. He says, my health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. He is mine forever. Everything is temporary, but God is mine forever. He gets it. He gets it. So what if we 
took what Asaph, just a regular guy in the back of the classroom and says, I can't figure it out, and raises him. What if we took what he just taught us today and we applied it to our lives and let it change us? Guys, I want to give you some homework. I want you, if this has stirred something in you, if you, you had a Moby experience, you're like, man, you know what? I need to make a change. I want to encourage you, starting today, read the Bible, please, but separately from that, spend 10 minutes a day. That's it, in God's presence. Just stop, get alone, and think about God. Listen to God. Worship Him. You know what? That is going to begin to impact your life, your family, your, your priorities. I mean, can you imagine if we all did that right here? Can you imagine if we said the words to God, God, you mean more to me than anything on earth. What would happen to this church? You know what would happen? People would come in to this church, and this place would have a group of people that were crying out to God, saying, God, I want to be in your presence. Our weekly prayer meeting on Sunday mornings would be packed, and something else incredible would happen. Can you imagine this? If we did that, if we got rid of envy, what would happen? Maple Grove, this sleeping spiritual giant, would wake up if we said no to our Lexuses and no to wanting that, that other lady's body and instead, we said yes to wanting and having a desire for God. Maple Grove would wake up, and they'd come into this place. They would pack it out, and they'd say, whatever you guys have, I want. It's the real thing. And one by one, people would begin to meet Jesus. One by one, they would step out of the darkness of envy into the glorious light of knowing that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I desire you than anything on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of this vulnerable soul named Asaph who wrote Psalm 73. God, we thank you for his intense love and passion for you. God, I pray that you would make that the anthem of this church, of these wonderful people. I desire you more than anything on earth. It's in your mighty name we pray, amen.